you have a Bible with you today, or your phone or anything else you'd like to follow along with, um, or the order of worship, uh, we'll be looking at John, or Mark rather, chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. So I say to you, hear the word of God. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered under many physicians and spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself the power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And yet he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw the commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother, those who were with him, and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they immediately... They were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and he told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray especially for those um, who, have, who have come here this morning and they are feeling uh, hopeless, those who have come here and they are feeling uh, some sense of despair, I pray, Jesus, that you would uh, minister to them especially. I pray that you'd be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name, we pray all of these things. Amen and amen. Well, I'm going to start with a question, as I often do, and the question I want to start with this morning is just this, is have you ever felt desperate? Or have you ever experienced despair? Or maybe, what is it that causes you to experience despair? Now, if you, say, if you told me you've never been desperate or you never experienced despair, I would call you a liar. All of us experience it, right? Some of us more than others. I mean, think about, like, um, how about finances? Have you ever been desperate about your finances? How you're going to pay the next bill or where the next debt payment is going to come from? Those kinds of things. 
Maybe you're, you're in a relationship and you're experiencing some kind of abuse, some kind of domestic abuse, and you think, wow, is this ever going to end, or am I ever going to be able to escape this abusive situation? Right? Maybe you're a kid and you're thinking, my grades aren't what they're supposed to be, and my parents expect me to go to this great college, I'm not, just not sure how I'm going to pull this off. Right? Despair sort of surrounds us. And usually the, what causes us to, to despair are those things which at least they seem to be out of our control. Things that we don't know what to do about, like we don't have money to pay our bills or, or, or we're in a bad relationship, something like that. Well, this morning, Jesus, we're going to talk about Jesus um, healing in the context of despair. Remember, we've been looking at this series, basically healings in the Gospel of Mark to see what they tell us about Jesus. And today's the, the, is, is an interesting story because it's, it's a story that actually involves two different people, two different uh, families, if you will, two different uh, kinds of people. But today's story is interesting to me, at least, be, is because it becomes very real. You see, when I was in the army, I attended two different parachuting schools. One school, um, you jump out of an airplane for anywhere from 13,000 to 18,000 to 25,000 feet. Halo school, high altitude, low opening. That was pretty cool. Another school I attended was just regular airborne school, jump school, where you typically jump out of the airplane from about 800 feet. Now think about it, if you've never done this, ask yourself, which do you think is more scary? 25,000 or 18,000 feet or 800 feet? It may surprise you, at least to me, 800 feet was infinitely more scary. Because you see, at 18,000 feet, the door of the plane opens, and you see it looks just like it's beautiful. It's heaven. There's nothing that's right. I mean, you can just see like little patches of ground, and when you jump, you're just falling forever, it seems like. 800 feet, as, as, you, as the doors of the plane open, and you can almost see people's faces on the ground. <laughs> Death is imminent. And it's a much more violent kind because of, it's a static line. So you jump out and it's kaboom, you know, and suddenly you're in the air and you don't know what to do, right? And you hit the ground almost immediately, it feels like, after you, you jump. You see, the, the 800 feet, the closer you are to the, to the ground, the more real it becomes. And what's interesting is we've been looking in the past several weeks, at least when I've been here preaching, at, at the, these miracles that Jesus has been performing, these healings, they actually, they, they go from like a 25,000 foot view down to... A, a very real 800-foot view. So if you remember what we looked at, you see that we didn't look at it, but it's the passage that comes right, almost right before this, Jesus calms a storm, right? That's, we, we can imagine things, and, we, and if you ask, can Jesus calm the storms, and you'd say yes, you know, the Sunday school answer is Jesus can calm the storms in our life. But most of us have not been in the context of a huge, deadly storm and have someone just whisper it, quiet. Or the healing of the demoniac. Remember, everyone knew who, who this guy was and how big it was and, and how crazy he was. And Jesus heals him. And when everyone comes back, the, the man is in his right mind and clothed. Now, do all of us, you know, if you're a Christian, do you believe that Jesus can cast out demons, even the worst of demons? A absolutely. But have any of, how many of us have experienced Jesus having to cast out demons in order for us to feel safe? We haven't. In other words, it's a 25,000-foot view. By the time we get to today's text, how many of us have ever experienced the, the death of a loved one? How many of us have ever been despaired of a disease that we had no cure for? 
or we had family members who have despaired because they had a disease, maybe terminal cancer or something. We have people in our congregation now like that. You see, when we get to the text today, suddenly it becomes real to us. We can look at Jesus calming the storm and, and talk about applications of that. We can talk about Jesus casting out demons and applications of that. But what happens when things all of a sudden become very real and we're in despair? Can Jesus do anything there? That's the text. That's what we're looking at today. We're going to look at three things today. We talk about despair. We're going to talk about the demeanor of despair, first of all. Like in other words, what does it look like when someone is desperate? What does it look like when someone feels like they're at their wit's end, they don't know what to do? So the demeanor of despair. We're going to look at the drama of despair. This text, is, this whole passage is very dramatic. And then finally, we're going to look at the death of despair. That the, the, either the girl is going to die or the despair is going to die. And spoiler alert, right? Despair dies. So let's look at the first thing. Let's look at the demeanor of despair. Look at verse 21. It says, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. And then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him, and earnestly, implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So what does despair look like for this guy named Jairus? Who, who is Jairus? You see, we get, we're going to have a contrast going on here. On one hand, the story begins with Jairus. So to begin with, he's a man. He's a male, which in Jesus' day, that was like, it's fr frankly, a more privileged thing to be. It's more privileged to be male than to be female. So right out of the gate, just by gender, he has some privilege going on. But also, he, he is wealthy. We know that he's wealthy because he's also the ruler of a synagogue. Now, what was a ruler of a synagogue? The ruler of a synagogue wasn't the priest or the preachers. The rule, ruler of a synagogue would be something like what we call uh, trustees or facility maintenance people. He was the one who was responsible for the upkeep and the maintenance of the, of the synagogue. He was responsible for picking out the readings. He was responsible for sort of stewarding and making sure the, the scrolls were kept, kept uh, nice and tidy and neat. And he would be the one who, who found guest preachers. In other words, he ran. He was like the executive pastor, if you will, of the, the synagogue. And so you don't get much more of, of an, being an insider than to be the guy who runs the church, right? So he, he's, he runs the synagogue. That's who he is. And also, it says that um, he, he has a name. In other words, we're given his name here probably because, remember in the Gospel of Mark, we think maybe Peter told this story to Mark, and Mark is just recording it. Well, this guy, Peter remembers him. His name was Jairus. He was a man, and he had a name. That's important because later on, the woman we meet doesn't have a name. She's a nobody. So he's a complete insider. And what's even more interesting about all of this is that he not only seeks Jesus... You can tell how desperate he is because he seeks Jesus, not just seeks Jesus, which is one thing, but he seeks Jesus in public in broad daylight. Remember earlier in chapter 3 of the book of Mark, all the synagogue rulers and the, the priests and, the, and officials, they were plotting to kill Jesus. And so here's a guy who, who, for all we know, was in on that plot. He most certainly was in on the rumors that the religious authorities wanted to kill Jesus. And nonetheless, he is so desperate, he's willing to seek Jesus in public where everyone can see him. That's pretty desperate. Because by seeking Jesus in public where everyone can see him, he is putting his whole livelihood on the line. He is putting, he's putting his, his role as the ruler of the synagogue 
on the line. He's putting his pride on the line. Everything that he has is going on the line in order to help save his little daughter. He is desperate. You ever felt that way? So here we have Jairus who has everything in the world that a man could want in the ancient Near East except the one thing that he can't control and that's whether his little daughter lives or dies. And in the context of of his little daughter living or dying, his demeanor is utter humility. He is willing to fall at the feet of Jesus in public. He doesn't care what anyone else thinks. So that's Jairus on one hand. So his demeanor is, is, is humility, and his demeanor is, is swallowing his pride to seek healing from Jesus, who may or may not, as far as Jairus knows, be able to heal him. And so it's a last-ditch effort on his part. So compare him with the woman. Notice verse 25. It says, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. By the way, later in the church, in, in church tradition, her name is Bernice, we find out. So I'm not going to call her Bernice now, but a little later I probably will. It says, and there was a woman, no name, and she had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. So what do we know about this woman. See, if Jairus was completely on the inside and connected, she was completely on the outside and disconnected. She had this, it says, a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, what would have caused that? There, there are a number of things that, that could have caused it. But uh, most likely, it was something, when I went to Ethiopia several years ago, one of the, one of the great, I met a, a female doctor who started this thing called a fistula clinic. And especially in, in places where the uh, conditions aren't as sanitary, oftentimes a woman, when she was given birth and the baby won't come out, the tissue will die, frankly. The woman's tissue will die. And basically, she'll be ruined from, from the waist down. And she'll be constantly bleeding for the rest of her life. Well, this doctor in Ethiopia figured out a way to fix this. And the reason that was so important to fix it is, is in that culture and in the Hebrew culture, if a woman was bleeding, she was unclean. You see, the, the, the Torah says that if a woman is menstruating, if she has her period, that she's unclean for seven days. Now imagine if you had it for 12 years long. No one could touch you. You couldn't touch anyone. You couldn't go in public. You couldn't do anything. You couldn't go to the synagogue. Nothing. She's completely disconnected because of this, this ailment that she has. And we know that she's desperate because she is trying everything. <coughs> Excuse me. To fix it. Notice verse 26. It said she had suffered much under many physicians and spent all she had. So so I don't know exactly what it would be like to go to a doctor in the first century, but I can't imagine it was a fun experience. And she went to many doctors and she spent all that she had. You see, this condition, especially if, she had lost, if it had happened in childbirth, meant she probably lost that child. She probably had lost her husband, and now she's lost all of her money trying to, to figure out some way, some doctor who can fix this for her. And nothing happens. Instead, notice that it says she was no better, but rather grew worse. I mean, the, the, you cannot describe a worse situation or a more desperate situation than this woman's situation. And yet she has, she hears, she had heard reports about Jesus and comes up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. 
So the, the ultimate insider, Jairus, he approaches Jesus from the front. Do you notice, right? He comes, he comes right out in, in the crowd and sort of you imagine the crowd parting because he has so much authority. He approaches Jesus from the front face to face and says, will you please heal me? Anything, will you heal me? The woman, she approaches Jesus from behind. She thinks, if I could just get in there and even get a touch. Notice how this whole idea of big, hairy, audacious goals, that's not really a BHAG. She doesn't say, you know, maybe all these things. She says, if I could just get in there and maybe touch him. Now, there's some precedent for this, by the way, in the ancient Near East. People often thought if they could touch the garment of a king as he rode by, that somehow his power would come into him. A lot of people wrote about that with Alexander the Great. So maybe she's thinking something like that. But on the other hand, what, on one hand you have Jairus who approaches from the front and his little girl is going to die. On the other hand you have this woman who approaches from the back and she thinks if I could just touch him. If I could just touch him. So she is so desperate, she's actually willing to go into the crowd where she shouldn't be, right? Because no one else is supposed to touch her. She's unclean. She's willing to touch this rabbi and make him unclean in order to, to maybe be healed. She's desperate as well. So while Jairus and the woman couldn't be further apart socioeconomically and religiously and as far as their connection, what they have in common is their despair. What they have in common is their despair, and what they also have in common is the hope that maybe, perhaps, Jesus can do something about it. That maybe Jesus is the one who can help me with it. Have you ever felt that? Yeah, some, of, some of you are here, maybe you're not Christians, and the reason you're here is you're asking that question. Can Jesus help me with this? You know, I don't, I'm not sure. Well, you gotta look the, at the, the next part of the text to get the answer, the drama of despair. Notice the next thing, what it says in verse 24. After Jairus has come and said, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Before I read that, I was telling someone this morning, what I, what I thought here, I thought, what would I do in that situation if I was Jesus? So here's a guy who has maybe been plotting to kill you. They certainly don't welcome you. They certainly aren't, aren't, aren't treating you well, and they're certainly not treating you like the Son of God who has come to save the world from all their sins. They're looking to, to betray you and murder you, and now he comes up to you and says, Jesus, will you please heal my daughter? If it was me, I'd be like, you're kidding, right? You're trying to, you, you who are plotting to kill me, now you come to me and you're wanting a favor? Let's talk about that. Fortunately, Jesus isn't like me. <laughs> Fortunately, Jesus is a bigger man than me. Fortunately, Jesus is more gracious and merciful. So this guy comes up who may have been plotting to kill Jesus, and he says, my little daughter is about to die. Will you help? And notice verse 24, it says, and he went with him. He didn't even ask a question. Jesus goes with him. Now, there's something that, that I want to point out here. I've met people in the course of my life who oftentimes, they're not Christians, and they have something bad happen to them in their life, and I say, would you like me to pray for you, or, or have you thought about taking this to Jesus? And they say that if I took it to him now, after I'm already sick, I would just be a hypocrite. You ever known anyone like that? Who they're, they're almost too proud to go after, even though they know maybe he could fix it? But I'm not going to go now because I didn't go when I was well. And if I didn't go when I was well, then Jesus is going to just think I'm a hypocrite and he's not going to help me anyway. Nothing could be further from the truth. Don't let your pride 
keep you from Jesus. Humble yourself. Jairus did. And, and you have to imagine he was pleasantly surprised that Jesus didn't even ask a question. That Jesus just went with him. You know, Charles Spurgeon was fond of saying, there's no one ever who calls upon Jesus that he doesn't answer. So don't let your pride, don't let the fact that you haven't called on him before or the fact that you're, you're only now waiting till you're desperate to call on him, call on him and see what happens. So Jesus, he, Jesus goes with him. Also, notice what happens with the woman. When the woman thinks, if, if I just touch his garments, I'll be made well. In 29, she touches him, and verse 29 says, and immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. In verse 30, and Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, you're kidding, right? You see the crowd pressing you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. In verse 30, that when it says he looked around to see who had done it, in verse 32, that means he, he was looking intently. In other words, he wasn't going to stop until he had found that person. Again, if it was me, and I had a busy day, and the crowd was, was clamoring around me, and I could fix a problem by just letting someone touch my robe and I keep walking, I would have probably done that. But Jesus feels that the power has gone out from him. And immediately he turns around because he doesn't want to just heal the woman. He wants to know the woman. He doesn't want to just fix her problem, but he actually wants to bless her. You see, that's the thing. If you're going to go to Jesus for healing, if you're going to go to Jesus because you're desperate, expect that he wants to know you. And notice it's what it says there. It says that um, he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Now that had to be pretty tough for her because she was unclean. And by touching Jesus, she had made him unclean. And you can imagine Jesus, or you can imagine the average rabbi turning around and going, what were you thinking? Or maybe what were you not thinking? Do you not care that you've made me unclean? Do you not care what, you know, what you've done to me? Instead, what does Jesus say to her? He turns to her and he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. He basically is saying, daughter, and that's a, that's a, that's a term of endearment, daughter, you actually did the right thing. You came to the right place. You came to the one who wants to heal you. Your faith has made you well. And it's important to point out that her faith was in Jesus. It wasn't just faith in, in faith itself or faith in herself. Faith always has an object. So faith doesn't make you well in and of itself, but faith in Jesus just might. Faith in yourself doesn't, can't, can't forgive your sins. Faith in Jesus will. Faith in yourself can't, you know, forgiving yourself won't remove your guilt. Letting Jesus forgive you will. So this drama of, 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 of despair that we see here only gets thicker because can you imagine what Jairus is thinking right now? So Jairus has said, Jesus, you have to come and heal my daughter because she is on death's door. That, that's literally that's what Greek, the Greek says. My daughter is at death's door. Can you come heal her? And Jesus immediately goes with him. And as soon as he starts out, this woman touches him. Jesus stops and turns. And he has this conversation with the woman. And if you're Jairus, what are you thinking? Come on. 
right? That's what you're thinking, right? She's better. Why are you spending all this time yapping? Don't flap your gums. Let's get moving to heal my daughter. Let's go, Jesus. Why are you just doing that? I mean, have you ever been at a party and, and you're with a friend and you got to go someplace and you tell the friend, come on, let's get out of here. And all the way out, the friend is stopping to talk to people. That's frustrating. Imagine your child is dying and the only person in the world who can make her well insists on talking to a nobody, an unclean woman who doesn't have any money, she doesn't have any status, she doesn't have any family, she doesn't have anything, and he's talking to her. Now here's what's interesting. Here's what we forget about all this stuff is that in order for Jairus to to experience the death of his despair, he had to see that woman be healed. In in other words, the, the stop that Jesus was making was just as much for the sake of Jairus as it was for the woman. You see, he heals the woman, and then right after he heals the, the woman, it says, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? 36, but overhearing, if you notice, if you're looking at an ESV Bible, it has a footnote there, overhearing. It also, it says the word ignoring might be there. So, but ignoring what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Now, Jairus has just seen Jesus heal this woman who has been sick as long as his daughter has been alive. And in the context of that, Jesus says, don't fear, but believe. And the point, I think, is this. Whatever Jesus, you've seen Jesus done for someone else, he's able to do for you. That's not a promise that he's going to do it for you, for sure. But if, but if Jesus, if anything that God has done for one person, he is able to do for you. If God has healed some other person from a disease, have faith. He might be able to do that for you. Or he can do it for you. He might be willing to do it for you. And so Jairus actually needed to see this woman as much as it frustrated him, as much as he didn't understand God's timing. But there's also a lesson in that for us. Right? We make all these plans and we have all these things that we want to do with our life. But the problem is, and Tim Keller always says this, the problem with the fact that we have plans is that God has plans too. And his plans always trump ours and his plans are always actually for our best. And so this stop, even though Jairus was probably frustrated, was actually for his good so that he might believe. And so he took Jesus to his house. It's an act of faith. He didn't say, nah, never mind, she's dead. He said, well, okay, I'm going to believe. And they go to the house. And it says, and they allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Now, why did these people laugh at him? People laughed at him because they didn't care. Right? In the ancient Near East, you, if, if someone died in your family, you were expected to hire professional mourners. Even if you're poor, you were supposed to hire at least two people and a flute. Jairus was wealthy, and so he probably hired a whole bunch of them. Right? There's a van outside, you have mourners, LLC, out, outside of the house. And their job was to weep and wail and make it just seem like this is the worst thing that ever happened. And Jesus says, why all the commotion? The girl's only asleep. And they immediately start laughing which tells you their mourning and weeping, wailing was sort of worthless. They didn't mean it. 
They, they laugh at Jesus and they mock Jesus for thinking that he can help this little girl. And what does he do? He puts them all outside. Took the child's father and mother, those who were with him. Went in where the child was, taking her by the hand, said to her, Talitha Komi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. You think? He says, little girl, arise, and she arises. Jesus has killed the despair of Jairus. The despair that he had has turned to amazement. It has turned into incredulity. It has turned to, I imagine, tears of joy that his little girl is brought back. Jesus has killed the despair of Jairus by raising his daughter. The way Jesus deals with our desperation our greatest desperation. What are we going to do if we have to face God? Jesus actually becomes desperate so that you and I can become hopeful. You see that Jesus, he, he doesn't just sit from afar. He goes with Jairus. He looks for the woman. The way Jesus heals us of our diseases, especially how does Jesus deal with our desperation? Well, if you look at the cross, what you see is Jesus becoming desperate so that we can become hopeful. Jesus becomes desperate. Do you remember what he says at the cross, among other things? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember in the garden, he said, Father, if there's any other way, and it says he sweat uh, blood in the garden, that's pretty desperate. Well, Jesus became desperate so that you and I might become hopeful. Jesus died on the cross so that you and I might live. Jesus became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God in him. The way that Jesus kills our desperation is he takes it onto himself and he heals it that way. Now, uh, am I here to tell you that if you have some desperate situation, you trust Jesus, you won't be desperate anymore. It's not as easy as that. But you have to start someplace. And are you trusting the one who has taken desperation upon himself so that you could be hopeful? Have you done that? Remember the movie, The Green Mile? Like I saw that years ago. I remember at some point it's revealed that John Coffey, he heals people. And they don't know how he does it. And then at some point they he takes off his shirt and he's an enormous guy and he's covered with scars. It's because the way he heals people is he takes their diseases onto himself. And that's exactly what Jesus does with us. You see, Jesus doesn't necessarily take our cancer. Jesus doesn't necessarily take our flu. But the greatest disease, the things that ruin our lives... Jesus has taken upon himself. And the question is, is will we have faith that he has done that? Will we trust that he has done that? If you're not a Christian today, are you willing to come to Jesus with your despair? Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that as we uh, consider this story of Jairus and his, his daughter being healed and of, of Bernice and her flow, issue of blood being healed, I pray that we would also believe that the desperation in our life, you would take ours as well. That if we cast our anxiety upon you, we will feel and understand and know that you care for us, as Peter says. We pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.